Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, once again, I love you so very much, and it's the joy of my heart to be with you here this morning. I uh, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I know I was blessed to get a chance to see family myself a little further up north, but as much as I enjoyed being with them, I also long to be back here with you as well, and so I'm great to be back in God's house as we enter into a new journey for the next few weeks. So let me share my heart with you a little bit. All right, so we finished up our, our series on the Lord's Prayer. And then, of course, we've had a couple of special weeks in between. We had homecoming. We had praise kids and a Thanksgiving special. And, and I prayed about where are we going to go next? Let me just say real quickly my, my vision for the pulpit ministry of Cedar Street Baptist Church. My goal as a pastor is to be an expositor of God's word, which means I go word by word, verse by verse, through the scriptures and let God do the talking. Now, my goal is to give you a full diet of the word of God. So in a given year, unless the spirit moves in a different direction, which he has all permission to do so, okay, I plan on each year preaching an Old Testament book, a New Testament book, a topic, a doctrine, and a gospel. That way in one year, you've gotten a full diet of the word of God. All right, so think back to what we've done this year. We started out this year uh, preaching kingdom stewardship, our time, our talent, and our treasures. That was a short series that was more of a topic. Then we went through Jonah, which was an Old Testament book. We went through James, which is a New Testament book. And we went through the Lord's Prayer, which is the doctrine of prayer. So now we're going to end the year in a gospel. And uh, I know sometimes at Christmas and in years past and maybe in years to come, we'll go through specific Christmas sermons and Christmas messages that lead us up to the incarnation of Christ in Bethlehem. But, you know, I think equally as important during the Christmas season is just to walk through the Gospels and and look at the life of Jesus Christ as we get to celebrate Him coming to be a human being, to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. What I want to do the next few weeks leading up to Christmas is walk through chapter 3 of the book of Mark and talk about how the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ continue over and over and over again to point to the fact that He, in fact, is the Son of the living God. The sermon series that we started last year as we walked through the first two chapters of Mark was Jesus Is. That's the point of Mark, and that's really the point of the Gospels. Jesus is showing His dominion over nature by calming the waters. He's showing His dominion over disease by healing the sick. He shows his dominion over every disability by giving sight to the blind. And eventually, he shows his lordship over death itself by raising some from the dead and eventually being raised from the dead himself. The whole book of Mark, as Mark is writing this letter to a church in Rome, he's basically saying over and over, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And that has huge implications for your life. In a moment, we're going to walk through the first part of chapter 3, and I'm going to give you a historic background of the context so you understand. But for those of you who get put to sleep by historical facts, I'm not giving you information just for the sake of information. I promise you if, you, if you lean into what I'm saying, you're going to see how this meets you right where you live. This has implications for your life. This is our series entitled, Jesus Is. So, as we start in chapter 3, we went through chapters 1 and 2 last year. We're going to pick up right where we left off, and I'll catch you up if you were not here last year. But Mark chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6, and the title of our message here this morning is, A Withered Hand and a Hardened Heart. A Withered Hand and a Hardened Heart. And to kind of prepare our hearts and our minds for this passage in in Mark 3, 1 through 6, I want to start off with a question, something to think about. Here's what I want you to think about. 
Has an experience in your life ever hardened your heart towards another person or group of people? All right, we're going to be talking about a hardened heart. Here's what I mean by that. Have you had an experience with another person that hardened your heart in such a way that you could never be around that person again? Or even worse, you couldn't even be around someone who reminds you of that person, even if they did nothing wrong, that your heart has become so hardened and calloused towards human beings that you no longer want to associate with them because of an experience that you've had in your life. I, I, I confess to you, my heart has been hardened over the years over certain groups of people and some, some awful experiences that I've had. I've confessed that to God and asked Him to help me to have a softer heart towards people who I don't agree with, who can be really offensive. But I also can think about times that people's heart has been hardened towards me and probably all of you as well. I remember back in 2007, I was working uh, in marketing. It was, it was probably the most uh, prestigious corporate job I had outside of baseball. I was making a living as a corporate marketing director for a network of hospitals in northern Pennsylvania. And it was a great job, great people. But the woman that I was working for, the supervisor that I had, she had a hardened heart. Basically, the vice presidents who were above her made her life so excruciatingly painful to come to work that she decided that my first day on the job, she was going to make my experience at work equally as excruciating. Perhaps you've had experiences like this. And you go to work day after day, and you see a person who, when they took that job, had joy. I mean, this woman, this woman had tremendous gifts in the world of marketing. She was a fantastic writer. She was a great graphic designer. She had vision. She had all of that. But the vice presidents, day after day, week after week, year after year, throwing annual reports at her and getting on her case about every tiny little thing. By the time that I showed up, her heart was so hardened that there's nothing that I could possibly have done to soften her heart. She was an angry woman, and I was simply her target. And I stayed there for two years. And the reason I left is I simply did not want to have my heart hardened either. And I was getting pretty close. The experiences in this world can harden our hearts. But I want to take it a step further. And as I say this, you may automatically assume this doesn't apply to you. But as we peel back the layers like a Vidalia onion to get to the core, I would venture to say all of us are in danger of this. Let's go a little further and ask the question, is your heart hardened toward God? Do you have a heart that has been hardened toward God? Most of you would say, of course I don't. I'm in church. It's Sunday. I'm here to worship. How could I possibly have a heart that's been hardened toward God? Well, not so fast. Because today we're going to be looking at the life of a Pharisee. And we are going to be getting into the mind of a Pharisee so that we can understand the heart of a Pharisee. And we need to understand the heart and the mind of a Pharisee so that we know as Christians in 2017 if we're in danger of having the same heart. That's what I want us to think about And that's what I want us to look at as we walk through Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and consider a weathered hand and a hardened heart. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Mark. Again, we'll be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you do not have a Bible, please grab the pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 996 in your pew Bible. And as you open that, 
I want you to think about this, and we'll stand here in just a second. Here's the big idea. Here's what I want us to get as we open up Mark chapter 3. In one sentence, I'd say this. Jesus proves that once again, he is Lord of the Sabbath, but the hardened hearts of the Pharisees want to kill him instead of praise him. So if you would stand at this time, again, turn to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and thank you for standing out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Again, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and it's page 996 in your pew Bible. As we read God's word, this is God's word to us, starting in verse 1. It says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we do love you. Father, we thank you and praise you for the day that you have made. Father, as we consider the truth here in Mark chapter 3, help us. I pray that you help me to fully articulate what's happening in this scene so that we can get inside the mind and in the heart of a Pharisee and understand why they were doing what they were doing and how we too could be in danger of having a hardened heart towards you wanting to do work in our lives. So Father, I pray that you would be with us at this time. Father, I pray that you take away distraction, that you clear minds and open hearts to receive this word and press it in on our hearts, Father, that we'd respond in repentance and faith. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said, amen. Okay, well, here's what I want to do. I'm not going to take but maybe two or three minutes to do this, but it's really important that I do this, because if you don't get the context of this passage, you will not fully understand why the Pharisees are so angry at Jesus simply wanting to heal a man with a withered hand, okay? To understand the Pharisee, you need to understand what a Pharisee is, and why they do what they do. All right, A Pharisee is not something we hear about in the Old Testament. If you notice, the first time you hear the name Pharisee, you hear it in the Gospels. Because the Pharisee is something that came on the scene in Judaism after the second temple was built. So let me give you just a real quick history lesson here. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was disobedient. And God over and over again said, obey me, obey me, obey me. And they would disobey, disobey, disobey. And God would restore them and forgive them. And then they would disobey and fall into God's wrath. And then he would bless them and restore them. And it happened over and over until we get to the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, he speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. And God says, if you will not repent, I'm going to give you over into the hand of your sworn enemy. And that's exactly what happened. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came into Jerusalem. They, built, they burnt the temple down to the ground. They plundered all their goods. And they stole the people away into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And God promised them, even then, even in the midst of that severe punishment, He said, one day, maybe not you, but your children will be able to come back home. And if you will restore the law of which I gave down through Moses, if you will obey the commandments of which I gave you, I will bless you and I will restore your nation. So here's what happens. 
Eventually, another generation is, rises up in Babylon. They finally get permission from the new king of Persia to go back into Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. We see in Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And here's what happens. The Jews decide, we never want to go back to our enemies again. So we need to do whatever it takes to make sure this time around, we're going to be obedient to God's law. Now that's a good intention. And I believe the Pharisees had good intentions that ended up being pure evil. And here's what I mean by that. So the Pharisee was basically what the scriptures call a Hebrew of Hebrews. They were the ones who kept the law. They memorized the entire Old Testament. They were the teacher of the teachers. The highest on the food chain if you're from the nation of Israel. They're the ones that led all the synagogue services. They're the ones that even the rabbis looked up to. And eventually, we know later on in the Gospels, they're the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Now, how did they get to this from this one point where they just loved God so much and they just wanted to obey him in such a way that they would never be punished again to the point where when God finally sends the Messiah, they actually want to kill him? How did they get to that point? Well, in one word, pride. What started off as a good intention, they wanted to be holy, they wanted to obey God, they began to take the heart of the law and put all kinds of letters around the heart of the law that did not come from God. Here's what I mean by that. We're going to look here in a minute about the Sabbath. Okay, the Sabbath in Jewish times was Friday at sundown until Saturday at sundown. In fact, today, most of them call it Shabbat, okay? And basically, during this Sabbath... The rule that God handed down, he modeled it in the book of Genesis when he worked six days and rested on the seventh. And then on the Ten Commandments, you guys remember in Exodus where God hands down those Ten Commandments through Moses, the commandment for Sabbath rest was not to work. It doesn't say anything specifically. It says do not work. Well, guess what? The Pharisees, not only did they have the written word, the scriptures, They believed in what was called the oral word, the Torah, the oral Torah. This was things that were never written down, but were discussed among rabbis as ways that they could protect themselves from breaking the law. So instead of just having a law that says do not work, they created 39 separate laws that tell you specifically what you can do and what you can't do. Now here's the problem. Most of that did not come from God. It came from man. Now, initially, they, all they wanted to do was make sure they wouldn't break the law and get thrown into punishment again. But they built such a hedge around the Sabbath that they began to make all these crazy man-made rules of what you can and what you can't do on the Sabbath when all God said was, do not work. And what he meant by do not work was, don't do what you typically do for your vocation the rest of the week. All right, so if you're a carpenter, put down your hammer on Sunday. All right, if you're a chef, put down your spatula or, your spatula or whatever you're using back in, in Israel times, all right? If you're a, uh, well, I was going to say if you're a street paver, put away your caterpillar, but I don't think they were using caterpillars back then in, uh, in Palestine. Whatever the case may be, whatever your job was, stop doing it for 24 hours. Trust that God will give you enough time and resources to get done what you need to get done in the other six days. Rest in Him and honor the Sabbath day as holy The Pharisees, again, they started out with good intentions, but what happened is they made laws upon laws upon laws, and what that did is it began to fill their heart with pride because when people came into the synagogue on Sunday, they saw these Pharisees who kept all these laws, and they thought, wow, look how holy these people are. I mean, they fast several days a week, and they do this, and they do that, and so it exalted the Pharisee. 
And the Pharisees began to become proud. And spiritual pride hardened their heart so much that when what they've been waiting for their whole lives, the coming of the Messiah, when it finally came, they couldn't see it. They missed it. Their, their ancestors waited for thousands of years for the Messiah to come. And when Jesus finally came, they were so proud and their hearts were so hardened. Not only could they not see it, they wanted to kill the very person who was coming to deliver them from their sin. Pride will blind us. And as we walk through this passage, I want to show us how all of us can fall victim to this if we're not careful. Okay, so let's walk through the text here together. The first of the three things as we walk through uh, these six verses is this. Let's take a look at a hand that is withered. A hand that is withered. All right, verses 1 through 3 say this. Again, he, meaning Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, what in the world does a withered hand have to do with you and me? Listen closely because I'm going to tell you. Okay? Look carefully. All right? It says, and he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Here's what you need to know about a withered hand. It is a debilitating condition where the person with that condition cannot do anything with that hand. And if you look in the book of Luke, the the book of Luke specifically says it was the man's right hand. And that's important, and I'll tell you why. Because the dominant hand for any working person in these times was almost always the right hand. So if a man had a debilitated right hand, it means he could not work and he could not provide for himself or for his family. And that was shame in the nation of Israel. When you were a man who could not provide for your family, you were treated as an outcast. So this man sitting there in the synagogue with a withered hand. Now, look a little further. Verse 2, it says, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Jesus didn't even do anything yet. The synagogue service is about to begin. And they're already looking at him. They're looking at the man, and they're looking at him, and they're saying, ooh, I can't wait to see what's going to happen now because if he heals him on the Sabbath, he's going to be guilty of the law, and we can tell, we can basically tell everyone that he's not the Messiah because the Messiah cannot violate the Sabbath law. So they're already accusing Jesus before he does anything. All right, a lot of it's based on the things that he taught and did prior to that moment. All right, we read back in Mark chapter 2 that Jesus already said that he was Lord of the Sabbath, and he already defined for them what the Sabbath was. He said Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. But what happens? They're watching him. They're saying, all right, if Jesus heals this man, he breaks the Sabbath law, he can't be the Messiah, and we can stone him or put him to death another way because he's broken the Sabbath law. That's a hardened heart. A hardened heart that doesn't truly understand the law of God and a heart so hardened that you'd want to punish somebody for actually healing another person. And Don't miss the end of the verse here. Verse 3 says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Let me tell you why that's different. In most of the passages in the Gospels, what you see is Jesus, people coming to Jesus to be healed. But Jesus is doing something different here. He's calling that person to come 
that he may do a healing. So what we know right now is Jesus is very intentional about what he's doing. All right, we're going to talk about the intentionality here in a second. Basically, Jesus is calling out the man with the withered hand because he knows this is going to expose the heart of the Pharisees, and I'll tell you why. If the man had a life-threatening disease, all right, if this man was suffocating and he could possibly die, if Jesus healed him immediately through that suffocation that he was having, nobody could hold it against him because if it's a life-or-death situation, even the Pharisees understood on the Sabbath, you do what you can to save a life. But this man had a debilitating disease, but it wasn't life-threatening. In other words, Jesus could have healed him after the Sabbath. But by healing the man who did not have a life-threatening disease on the Sabbath, it exposes the hearts of the Pharisees who made their own Sabbath laws, and Jesus had no intention of keeping them. And what did it do? It made them angry. All right, as we look at number two, the heart that is hardened. All right, we've seen a hand that is withered. Now we see a heart that is hardened. All right, verses 4 through 5 say this. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Why in the world could the Pharisees not respond to that? Why did it make them so angry? Jesus was basically saying, I make the law here. You created all these man-made laws about what you can do and what you can't do in the Sabbath. I'm telling you the Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal or to kill? Can you answer that question? And there's silence. They're angry because they're so puffed up in their pride. What they're saying to themselves is, I'm a Pharisee. I know the law. When you come into this synagogue, you better honor me and you better respect the law that I know better than you. And Jesus is saying, no, sir. It's my law, not yours. I know the heart. You don't. I'm asking you, do you know that it's lawful to hurt or to kill? To to bind up or break down? And they could not answer him. They were absolutely silent. And how does he respond to this? It says two things. Jesus looked at them with anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. I think Jesus had righteous anger to say, how dare you be so prideful in the house of God that you think this worship service is about you? But then I think he was grieved. How could a human being whose the purpose of his life, the purpose of a Pharisee, was to preserve the law in such a way that the nation of Israel would be ready for the Messiah to come and save them from their sins? And yet he's grieved at the fact the one thing that they're waiting for is six inches in front of their face and they can't see it. They're blind. It made him angry, but it made him, it made him want to weep because they're lost and their heart is hardened. That's, that's what blindness does. That's what pride does. It blinds us. Now let me, and, and I know in the next few moments this is, this is going to hurt us all a little bit, but I need to bring this into 2017 because right now up to this point I've given you the context of the passage, but how does this meet us? I don't think anybody in this room is in danger of missing it when Jesus returns, okay? The book of Revelation teaches us he's going to come riding in on a white horse. We're going to hear trumpets. We're going to see people bend their knee and confess with their tongue that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't think anybody in this room is going to miss it when Jesus returns. But let me tell you what you might miss, the work that Jesus wants to do in your life right now. 
Jesus may be, may be wanting to do a work in your life right now. And the way that he's choosing to do it rubs you the wrong way because you're prideful. Because I'm prideful. Because we're prideful. The danger of pride is it blinds us. You know, two weeks ago we had homecoming here. And I tried so hard to say, as we celebrate 53 years, let it not be a point of arrogance that this is how church is supposed to be done. Let it just be a gratefulness to say, God blessed us with a wonderful church family that we could celebrate our Christianity with the last 50 years. Because if we're not careful, church is one of the places that we can be the most prideful. And I'll talk more about that in a minute, but... You know, I'll never forget this discussion. So a few weeks before I joined Cedar Street for the very first time, I had come as a visitor many times, but I was very blessed to be serving at uh, Grace Community Church just down the road on Pulaski Highway. Most of you know Mike Holt. Um, You know, his ministry started years ago at First Baptist before he ever planted that church. And I'm grateful for my brother Mike. He baptized me. He gave me my first chance to teach. And one of the last conversations that he and I had in his office before I joined Cedar Street, we just talked about church, and I said, you know, grace is a lot different than Cedar Street. It looks different, it sounds different, and I said, Brother Mike, sometimes I struggle because when I open the scriptures, I want to see what God wants a church to be like, and I want to be like what Jesus wants our church to be like. And Mike said something I've never forgot. He said, Bo, if all the apostles were alive today, they wouldn't all be going to the same church. All right, there are some of them that would have preferences, and that's the key word. They would prefer different type of churches because the Bible gives us a very small list of what a church must be but gives us great freedom on how we can express who we are as a church through our worship. I'm going to tell you what I mean. I'm going to show you one passage of Scripture. I read this my second week as a pastor. If you want to look there in the Scriptures, you're welcome to, but in the essence of time, I'm going to move real quick through this. But Acts chapter 2 Okay, if you're a note taker, just write this down. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Just, just listen, okay, just listen. This is the beginning of the New Testament church. Here's what it says. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time... Oh, I'm sorry. The page turned on me while I was walking. All right. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching... And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day, here's the key, verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You want to know what a church is called to be? Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Those are the simple requirements. All right, it says, they submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. What's the apostles' teaching? It's the scriptures. So they came together and heard the preaching and teaching of the word of God, the breaking of bread and prayers. There's fellowship and worship. So we have preaching, fellowship, worship, and then it says that uh, they believed and had all things in common. All right, priesthood of all believers. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. There's evangelism and missions. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with generous and glad hearts, praising God. That's worship. That's praise. That's basically a church. If you're preaching the word of God, 
You're worshiping God in spirit and truth. All right? You're fellowshipping with one another, held accountable in your growth with the Lord with one another. You're doing evangelism and missions, getting out the gospel both in word and in action. You are a church. It doesn't matter what clothes you wear. It doesn't matter the type of music you sing. It doesn't matter what instruments are used or not used. Those things are capital P preferences. And we become Pharisees when our preferences become more important than what I just read in Acts chapter 2. That's the blindness that we're in danger of in 2017 as Christians when we worship preferences. All right, let's look quickly at number three. We saw basically a hand that is withered, a heart that is hard, now a healing that is rejected. It simply says this, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the saddest truth of pride that leads to a hardened heart. You want to kill the one who's doing the work of God to heal other people because they reject your way of life. Now, here's where it hurts us in the last maybe two minutes I have left. Let me be, let me be real, okay? Let us examine our own hearts to see if we too are Pharisees. Now, we said if Jesus came into this place, we would know who he is, and if he healed somebody with a disease, we'd praise him. We'd not want to kill him. All right, but what if Jesus wanted to do a fresh work in your life or a fresh work in this church and it looked or it sounded differently than anything you've experienced before? Would your pride blind you to what God is doing and you reject it? Or would you be open to it and would you accept it? Here's what I mean. First, do you think you can grow in a relationship with God by never joining a church? If you think you can have God on your own terms, you're prideful and you need to repent or you might become a Pharisee. Do you think a church has to be just like the one you grew up in to be biblical? What I mean by that is, does the pastor have to have a suit and tie? Does the choir have to have robes? Does music have to be sung from a hymn book? Does it have to be preached from one translation of the Bible? If you believe that, you have pride. And your heart's hardened. And you need to repent. Or you will become a Pharisee. Do you reject even going to church because everyone in there is a bunch of hypocrites and nobody understands how tough your life has been? If you believe that, you think it's really about you and you have pride and you need to repent or you might become a Pharisee. Do you think that there are some sins that God forbids in Scripture that he's okay with now because the culture says they are okay? If you believe that, you have pride and you need to repent or you may become a Pharisee. And this is maybe the hardest one. Do you feel uncomfortable about God bringing someone into this church who doesn't look like you or smell like you or live in the same neighborhood as you or doesn't respect all of your church traditions? If you want this church to grow and to God to do a fresh work in this church, he may do it by bringing people in this church who've never been in a church before. And it's my prayer every day that would be a multi-ethnic church, that would be a multi-generational church, that would be a church that enjoys different types of worship. And I will never, ever back down from the authority of the Word of God, so you never have to worry about that because a lot of churches that open up their arms to everyone also water down this book because they don't want to offend anyone. You don't ever have to worry about that as long as I'm behind this pulpit. But I promise you this, whoever God brings to us, whatever background they're from, whatever the color of their skin, whatever their socioeconomic status, if God brings them here, 
I'm going to give them Jesus. And I pray that you would do the same because if they offend you because they're not like you, they don't sing like you, they don't act like you, you have a hardened heart. It, it, it would crush my soul to know that God would say, I have someone who I want to grow into the image of Christ, but Cedar Street's not where they're going to do it. I need to send them over here because over there their hearts are warm enough to receive it. I want to be a church that is so on fire for Christ that our hearts are so soft and open to his work that we would set aside our preferences and truly worship God in spirit and in truth and see what he's going to do. Because if not, we're in danger of being Pharisees. And I don't want that to happen to any of us. And all of us, myself included, are in danger of that. Let me say before we close, preferences are not bad as long as they're kept preferences. We all have them, right? I'm here at Cedar Street because I enjoy the culture of this church. I love the fact that we have blended worship. I love the way Jody leads us in song. We got some of the new stuff. We got some of the old stuff. It's all kind of mixed up together. Some people don't like that. I love it. I love the people of this church. I believe this is the most encouraging church that I've ever been a part of. I've been so blessed to be a part of this church. But you know what? I've visited a lot of churches and I've been members of other churches that aren't exactly like ours. And it's not to say we're doing it the way it should be done. What it is to say is I have found a home and I'm grateful. I pray that you feel the same way. For those of you visiting, I pray that you have an awesome church that you're going to go back to next week and that you feel the same way about that church that I do about this church. And if you're here and you don't have a church, why don't you come find out more about us? Starting next week, I'm going to have a sign-up sheet in the vestibule for our next prospective member class that will start the, the second week of January. <clears throat> no obligation, just come and, and listen and hear and share, and we get to know a little bit about you, you get to know a little bit about us, and if you come to enough classes, you'll be eligible to be presented for membership. Here, here's, here's the point. As we close, just have a picture in your mind of a man with a withered hand and a Pharisee with a hardened heart. Why was the man with the withered hand healed? Because he had, no, he had no pride. When he couldn't work and provide for himself, he had nothing left. Why is it that Jesus navigated to the least of these? Because they had no pride. Their heart was not hardened. They knew they had nothing to offer. They just came to Jesus and said, I got nothing left. <clears throat> You're all I got. It's the elite. It's the prideful. It's the super intellectual. It's the, it's the spiritual elite that think that they're better than everyone else that have such a hardened heart that Jesus says, I can't break through to you. Your, your heart's stone. And Jesus came to change that. It, as we sum it up, I'd say this. Jesus came not only to heal broken bodies, but to change hardened hearts that have turned against God and others. And that's what it says in Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. As we enter into a time of invitation, I want to say one last thing. Whether you realize it or not, every single person in this room is born with a heart that is hardened towards God. The Bible says before you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're an enemy of God. And it's not that God doesn't love you. It's not that God doesn't want you to be a part of his family. But you have a heart that is hardened towards him because you do not obey his word. And you do not know your need for salvation. But maybe there's someone in this room. Maybe there's more than one person in this room that God has enabled you to get into the worst stage of your life. And you're broken. 
and you're confused and you're wondering why all this is happening and what God is doing through the brokenness is he's breaking through the stone of your heart and he's getting ready to change your heart. If you're here today, as Larry Sykes said at the very beginning when he read the psalm, it's not by accident. You're not here today just because you're in town with family or because you just happen to drive by the church. When it comes to a sovereign God, there are no coincidences. You're here today because God brought you here to hear this message, and he wants to know, is your heart soft to hear it and respond to it in faith in Jesus? Or is your heart hardened, and you'll say, I don't need that, and you'll walk away and continue with the rest of your life? If you hear God calling out to you, to give your life to Jesus, do it today. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord and be prepared to give your life to him and then find a Bible-teaching church that will help you grow in your faith. And if, and if you are a believer and there's something that you have a hardened heart towards that God's convicted you of during this service, you may also come as we sing and ask God to soften your heart and cleanse you. And as we said in 1 John, if we confess that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us and to change our hearts. Let's pray. Father, how dangerous it is for us to ever think we could never be a Pharisee. For we know, Father, they they all started out with good intentions. They wanted simply to obey you. But when they made more of the law than you do, they made laws that you did not give us, and then got angry at anyone who would violate those, Father, they became prideful and their hearts were hardened. But Father, we have made laws in this church and in every church that are not yours of clothes we should wear, of things we should say, of songs that we should sing or not sing. Father, forgive us where we've made laws where you've not made them. We've elevated preferences to a part where our hearts are hardened. Father, let us be grateful for a church you've given us to worship you rightly. And for anyone in this room, Father, that does not know your Son as Lord and Savior, would you prick their hearts right now that they would know right now, Father, is the time of salvation, that they'd give their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.